You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio, Gangland Wire. I've got our good friend and co-host Cam Robinson on the line here. Hi, Cam. How you doing? I'm uh, doing great, Gary. Doing great. Glad to be here. How's everything up there in Munster, Indiana? We are. Uh, we are good. We got a beautiful day today. I, I think we are finally done with winter and uh, uh, COVID cases going down. Everything is. Uh, everything is kosher. Yeah. So you're gonna have to be driving back into Chicago here pretty quick, aren't you? Yeah. I'm heading back into the city for work, and I'll be glad to get out of the house. You know, I mean, I know that you're back on the uh, back on the golf course, and it's it's good to get it's good to get back out, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It is. Even have met some people at lunch or dinner. Actually, as long as we can sit outside, I'll do it. I don't. Right. I won't sit inside with a whole bunch of people. But, yeah, uh, and I finally rode in a golf cart with somebody the other day, and I, I think you're okay there too. It's mainly yeah. being trapped inside with people indoors, and, yeah, and nobody's got a mask on and that kind of thing. So I still wear a mask in some places that I go into, and still about like about half the people probably are wearing masks, like at Walmart or something like that, or Lowell's. I've had to go in there a couple three times, and some people do, and some people don't. I just go ahead and wear it. Better be safe than sorry. Plus I'm old <laughs> i i wear one everywhere now i i just i'm not gonna take a risk for a, for a while i'm gonna be wearing it yeah that's it's probably a rule when you go back into the office you have to wear your mask oh yeah yeah are you keeping part of your people home because the uh, uh to have room so everybody can keep spread out or yeah the office that i'm i'm working in yeah they they have a uh they're working at about 75 percent capacity in the yards no they've got they've got everybody but i there are uh limits in spacing as far as going into the yard offices but but the office where i'm working at they are at 75 percent capacity and uh in common areas there's mass and, and limitations on on how they can function out in the yards of uh, railroad yards where you're outside you you know i i, I, I feel you're pretty safe outside most everywhere they've got masks at the company issued so yeah i even went down to the demonstrations just to kind of see check it out and get a first-hand look that they're reasonably close to my house there and, and uh, boy there's a whole bunch of people packed in there close uh, cheek by jowl, as we used to say, that did not have mask on. A lot of them did, but a lot of them didn't. And mm-hmm. and those poor cops, uh, you know, they can only they they had the gas mask on for a while, but uh, then they took them off, and 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 they were all over each other. And and some of them had mask on, and some of them didn't. I, there didn't seem to be a rule on that. So I don't know. We'll see if any big COVID spikes come out of the demonstrations, or you know, we had a big uh, deal down in the Lake of the Ozarks. This made the national news where they had a picture of a whole bunch of people in a swimming pool and lounging in an yeah. area around it right after the first time that the governor said you could do do that. I remember and, that. And last I read, uh, that was a couple of weeks ago, There's only one case that came out of it, so I don't know what, this damn thing is crazy, and it's everywhere and it's nowhere. That's right. I just know I, I, I'm i old man, I don't want to get it. <laughs> Hell No. I had asthma as a kid, and I tell you, there's nothing worse than not being able to breathe, man. 
Moving right along, the Great Bookie Robbery, Melbourne, Australia, April 21st, 1976. So Dan Bashford and, and my friend Farrell, are, I hope you guys are happy. This is our second Australian stories, and, and we do want to take care of you guys down in Australia. But can we have quite a few fans down there? I just can't mm-hmm. uh, really have their names of them, but I get quite a few hits down in Australia. And this will be our third Australian story, and there's a lot of crime down there, isn't there? The underworld or, or the uh, the underbelly in Australia, as they uh, as I've heard it, it said, they they really have a, a lot of interesting characters down there. It's, they do. Uh, really, I mean, a lot of really colorful colorful bunch. And uh, uh, there was a really good series in Australia called uh, Underbelly, and they covered different different yeah. uh, periods of time. That was a, a damn good show, and it really got me turned on to to Australian crime groups and I, I really did a lot of uh reading on them and it uh man just just a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> where do you find that underbelly is that on netflix or amazon or? it was on netflix a couple of years ago now you can catch it sporadically on prime okay. d- different seasons i think season four and five the first three seasons were what, what i liked i need to get caught up on some of the later ones but uh it might have to be might have to buy them on Prime. I saw that, some references to it, maybe something on YouTube, and I just, I know it was about Australian, but I was busier than heck at the time, and I didn't really try to watch them. I have to get back and take a look at those. You might be able to catch it on YouTube, honestly. You can probably catch a couple episodes on uh, on YouTube. These bootlegger kind of guys will take something that's popular like that, and and it'll be kind of low quality, uh, low res, but yeah. they'll, they'll slip it up there until they get caught. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I had a guy that was doing mob documentaries for the National Geographic. You know, he was taking them and manipulating them a little bit, and he got away with it for a while. And he even took part of mine and part of another guy's that had something about Kansas City and put it together and put up his own mob documentary <laughs> based on mainly yeah. stolen stuff from mine. I got a hold of him. I messaged him. I think I said, told this story before. I messaged him and I said, "Hey, dude, at least you could do is put up a reference to my website or something." <laughs> you know, he answered right back and he said, "Okay, <laughs> he did," and he did. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's an honest bootlegger. Really, really. The great bookie robbery. That is a. I, I like caper stories, as you know. Yeah. Uh, Hole in the wall gang. I love doing that one. I, I've worked on the pure later case, uh, and I've got a book on that just on the pure later case uh it kind of periphery it touched on the outfit it was one of the largest uh, uh armored car well actually yeah. armored car robbery it was the armored car headquarters robbery of pure later armored mm-hmm. cars let's see if i've done another one i can't remember i think i've done another one but i love oh the vault we talked about the, the, the vault, vault yeah. robbery that movie, that movie's on Prime now. I just it watched is. it the I other did, night. It's I just good, watched good it. Movie. I did. I just caught that. And the uh, guy, Ray Chuck Bennett, was known as the general because uh, he acted as a general. Let's, tell me a little bit about this uh, Ray Chuck Bennett. Ray Chuck was a, was was known as a, a really smart guy, a career criminal, a crim. He was known as a planner. He was a, a well-known bank robber and smuggler. He left Australia in the in the 70s. He was part of what they called the kangaroo crew in, in England. I guess they, they were all a bunch of, bunch of Aussies, pulled a bunch of heists all over England. They probably didn't name themselves that. that might <laughs> Good one. It was probably assigned to them. They pulled a bunch of heists. They did eventually get caught, and they were sentenced to, to jail in England. While he was there, he met uh, a British crew named the Wembley Mob, and they, were, they had these militaristic methods of robbery. They were really... 
they were they were all ex-military guys as I understood it and they were really really by the book and how they approached things kind of like a lot of the American bank robbers did in the 30s how they had uh, how they had a lot of right right by the book ways of doing things and really procedural and he he worked with them and he really studied and using a lot of their tactics he came up with he planned uh, this robbery of a place called the Victoria Club the cash office which would be where the the bookies for all the uh, uh, races uh, the cash office would be the the uh, armored truck would arrive with all the cash and the bookies would all tally it up in the cash office. They would apportion each to everybody who had who had gambled, and and it was just it, it's where all the 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 bookies would would get all their cash for for payouts and 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 different things. It was a total cash business. It was unreported because they were all crooked, and and you know if, if you're dealing in total cash, you're only going to report maybe 10% of it tops. And so Ray Chuck knew that what went on with the movie Vault, where, where there was a bunch of undeclared valuables in, uh, in a giant vault owned by criminals, it's, it's basically untraceable and, and nobody could uh, nobody would report it. So he, he knew how many men it would take, kind of like Lufthansa, and he put a team together. So like the, the Victoria Club was like a club, like maybe a, yeah. a bar. This was not an off-track betting spot. At first you think, well, this is an off-track betting spot. But no, it was individual bookies would be out working with their customers. And, and this would be a place where they could take their money in and people could come in maybe and, and get paid or, or something like that. Anyhow, the money would all end up from from all the bookies. I think it did have some off-track betting. I, I couldn't really tie down what it is, but I think it was off-track betting or, or they, I mean, I think it was off-track betting. It might've been sports betting. I think it was just a general sort of, sort of a, a, a club where people did come in to make all kinds of, okay. all, all sorts of betting and things. Yeah. Of course, and we know that the law enforcement in, in those days was, was not the sharpest and probably being paid right. off also. And, and so they, could operate something like this right and and you know it's perfect to hit hit a bunch of criminals that is the best victims as long as you can get mm -hmm. away with as long as they don't figure out who you are because uh, <laughs> uh, you know they all live in the same basic world and and uh, exactly so it's going to be hard to get away from it you know they talk about uh, i heard some comment about like uh, law enforcement uh, up in uh, uh, north suburbs of chicago oak park where ricardo led well they didn't really need the cops because they had the outfit and yeah and, and i say well yeah as long as the people doing the stealing were like some kind of guys that were connected around and new people in the outfit what if a whole big crew of teenage kids came out of the south side and and went in and and kicked in a door and robbed a bunch of houses kicked in some doors robbed a bunch of houses uh, up there then took it all back to the south side. They're never going to figure that one out. And even if they do, they're never going to go be able to go find them. Yeah, it's not going to go in. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, you know, uh, criminals can enforce a lot of lot of things within themselves. But once somebody comes in from the outside that they don't know, or yeah, why, uh, you know, they're they're just as helpless as any other John Doe citizen. That's, yeah, that's when they need the cops. So who were these? Who was it, Ray Chuck? What what was? Uh, we don't really know much more about him other than you know he went to England and came back. He was a like I said, he was a career criminal. But what we do know about Ray Chuck and a lot of the guys is that they were all members of this federated ship painters and dockers. With you know the 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 dockers the painters and dockers they called them the dockies. It was a trade union. They were responsible for for shipbuilding and but really, it was 
kind of a kind of like the teamsters or the laborers these guys worked in pretty harsh conditions so you knew who you could depend on but in addition a lot of the people and I don't I'm not don't mean to count cast aspersions on people who were who were who were dockies but there were a lot of there was a criminal element like with with any unions a lot of these guys who had no show jobs and uh, or ghost jobs as, as they called them you knew who was on the take and who was not working with these guys you knew who was who was corrupt and so these guys worked in close quarters, and so Ray Chuck chose a lot of his guys from fellow members of, of the Dockies. And you see this a lot throughout Melbourne, and then later on during the, uh, during the Melbourne Gang War into the 80s, you see a lot of those guys were, were painters and dockers. And, and throughout the 70s, you get a lot of, a lot of the, the wars in prison. The guys are, are uh, painters and dockers. Guys who were fighting with with like Chopper Reed in in the prisons, they were painters and dockers were at war. So you get a lot of instances of the painters and dockers and, and a lot of criminal investigations into them. Now I I'm, I don't I'm sure that not even most of them were bad, but I know that there was a criminal element just like there was in the Teamsters and just like there was in the Laborers. Again, I'm, I'm probably a small minority. It was eventually deregistered. Because the membership had fallen down below a thousand, but there was a lot of criminal investigations into them. So Ray Chuck chose his team members, most of them, from fellow painters and dockers who were also steeped in the criminal world. Yeah, it's kind of like Frank Sheeran with the, the Teamsters. You yeah. Know, it's kind of the Frank Sheeran of that, or, or like Danny Green with the uh, Longshoremen. Yes. So, Longshoremen. I mean, the unions, uh, historically, I worked at uh, Ford Plant in the, in the United Automotive Workers, and and we had a couple. One guy, uh, Cowboy Ray Ridinger, he was my committee man. Would come around, and and I knew he was kind of shady. One time they found a, a somebody pried the payphone off the wall and and opened up the cash part of it and, and then dumped <laughs> it and behind our line. And and somebody he came through there and somebody pointed out said, "Hey, Cowboy, look at that!" And he picked it up and he like started wiping made a big production out of wiping the fingerprints off of it and i thought well why would he even think about that so so fast forward a few years later and i'm on the police department and i hear about this uh tech unit that was serving a drug search warrant on a a, a drug house over on the east side and and they shot the pit bull that that came charging out at him and they said it was owned by some guy called cowboy i said who and I knew he came from this particular area. They called it Dog Patch, and so I checked into it. It was Cowboy Ray Ridinger, and he had a he had a whole drug operation going on over there. He he was a guy that you know dealt in stolen parts, and uh, I, I watched him pay off a foreign new foreman over there one night, or new foreman paid him off. He was our committeeman, and we had a brand new foreman, and and they had a dice game going, and and I was holding the light for it, the flashlight out in the back of the union hall, and. And Cowboy would make pass after pass, and then he'd lose the dice out in the dark. And and then one time I, like, shined the light over there, and he's, no, 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 don't do that. And he, about that time he found the dice, and he handed them off to this foreman who would then lose. You know, uh, he, he'd throw some money out there, and, and he couldn't make a pass for anything. And the dice would go around, and he'd finally get back to Cowboy, and he'd all of a sudden they'd go out in the dark again, and he'd get them back. Then he'd make about five straight passes, and and the only person fading him was this foreman. <laughs> and, 
And that foreman was a friend of mine, so I saw him a few days later, and I said, you know, he was cheating you the other night. And he said, hey, he said, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And just said, and I, and in hindsight, all of a sudden, I realized he was just paying him off by intentionally letting him cheat him. The foreman was, you know, lost about I bet a thousand bucks in, in about. 30 minutes time that night but i bet he didn't have many problems with the union when somebody had a grievance and they went to cowboy and it was against his foreman i bet he didn't have any problem at all i bet that grievance got uh got shit canned pretty quick so uh, you know most unions have those guys in there in there that do that parlay that payphone money into quite an empire so tell me about the the great bookie robbery this this seems to be their uh, masterpiece robbery huh 1976. Yeah. So you get, Ray Chuck puts his team together. They start training. He plans a job. This shit's good. I mean, he rents an office two floors above the Victoria Club. At nighttime, they learn the building. They go throughout the building. They learn what's what. They break into the Victoria Club at night and they they do practice runs. Oh, really? They rig the elevators and they make them constantly jam between floors so the elevators don't work well. They uh, they bypass the building security overnight. They cut the bolts of the fire escape door. They undo the bolts, they cut them in half, and then they lightly glue them so that when they kick the damn door, kick the fire escape door, it'll just explode right off the bolts. They, they totally rig the building. I mean, they're in the Victoria Club practicing this shit from their office overnight. They put together a bunch of, of weapons. You know, they, they're, they're working out every day, getting in shape. They each, each man goes out separately to put together the weapons that they'll need, because if they all go out and get all the guns at one time, it'll draw a lot of uh, attention, especially when this game, when this, when this job pops off. He chooses for his men, three guys, Ray Chuck is close to these other two guys, this Laurie Prendergast and Vinnie Mickelson. And they choose these two brothers, Brian and Les Kane, then another couple guys, Ian Carroll and Normie Lee. So you've got these two factions of Ray Bennett, Laurie Prendergast, and Vinnie Mickelson, and then Brian and Les Kane, and then two guys who are neutral. I was looking at the pile of guns that they got, though. It was the, the cops later found the guns. I didn't really recognize them. I thought it looked like a cross between some, some Sten guns and some maybe some of those German MP40s. And I looked it up. It was actually what's called an... Uh, an Austin submachine gun. It was an Australian uh, uh, submachine gun, which is literally a cross between a, a Sten gun and a German MP40. Oh, really? They had uh, three or four of these submachine guns, and uh, they did have a Tommy gun, and they had uh, a couple shotguns. So these guys were armed to the teeth with uh, balaclavas. I mean, they had four machine guns and two shotguns. They worked out for, for months, rigged the building, and there is... One version of the story that they had a safe in their upper office, that they had, they had moved a safe up there, and we'll get to that in a minute. The day of the robbery comes off, and the armored truck got a flat tire, and it's 15, 20 minutes late. Oh, wow. <laughs> You've got all these guys waiting. Keyed. Keyed up. Exactly. And you know, you know minutes turn into hours yeah, oh, when, yeah. you're, when you're all ready to go. What they did was they had a they pulled up in a panel van and they had a real large semi truck that they, you know, had a knock in the engine and was smoking really bad. And they figured if it's making a lot of noise, nobody will hear it. So they parked the van in the alley and they pulled the truck right up in front of it in the, in the middle of the street. And they figured, well, it'll slow down traffic and it'll make so much noise. Nobody will hear us. They kicked the uh, fire door off the hinges. It comes right away. And there are about 118 people inside. They've got balaclavas on. They subdue everybody. Nobody gets hurt. 
They're inside for about 11 minutes. They use the bolt cutters because the, the cash is just in little locks in boxes. They cut all the boxes, get out with 118 bag calico bags, you know, those, those leather bags of cash, and they were in there for 11 minutes. Well, there was a hundred and some people they had to yeah. hold guns on. Man, that's dicey there. You yeah. got that many people to watch and, and hold at bay, man, because you may have a hero back there in the back with, with that has his own firearm. Yeah, between between all the bookies and the armored car people and the people who worked in the club, there were there were a lot of people. I mean, they had really really trained for this, and they they knew because the bookies were there waiting for their cash. I mean, they and and you know you've you've got guys who who were raring to you know they, they knew that this is their cash that they're not going to get back. There's two stories about what happened after the robbery. Normie Lee's lawyer said he got two versions from Normie Lee, and Normie Lee had long since died when his lawyer finally re revealed what happened. He said he was told two things, that either they took the money while everybody was detained, they ran up the stairs to their office and locked it all in a safe, the safe that they had pre-planted, and then they all sprint down the steps with a couple of empty bags, throw them in the in the van and peel out and take off, while the, the semi-truck is out front blocking traffic Backing, backing up traffic and preventing the cops eventually from getting there. And the other version is that they actually did run out with the bags, throw them all in the van, and then leave with the actual cash. Based on the lawyer who sort of was winking and smiling, I think that they had carried the cash upstairs, locked it in a safe, and the cash stayed on the premises for uh, several weeks, and they slowly moved it out of the building. I, I, I mean, that's, that seems to be... And maybe that's just a romantic, uh, uh, you know, thought about how, how irony, how, uh, you know, how ironic it would be. But I, that, that's a strange story for him to come up with on his own when, when everybody sees these guys running out. Yeah. How would you, I mean, why would you even think of a story like that? And, yeah. and these guys, like you they had trained, they even, I noticed they were going out jogging and boxing and trained for months like they were, you know, going to participate in the Super Bowl or something and and got all this material together guns from all over the places and there's different trucks and broke in and out several times just to you know have it all set up and get familiar you know they had a layout of it and did practice run-throughs and and everybody had an assigned job and, and all that it would make sense that they might do something that audacious and that uh, unexpected yeah, I like that version uh what what they eventually took though is the Victoria Club reported about a million two. That's what the bookies finally you know I lost uh, fifty thousand. I lost whatever. In actual the based on the the amount of bags that that people reported seeing them carrying out, what the armored car guys reported carrying in, they think the actual take was ballpark between eight and sixteen million. Wow. I mean, a lot of damn money. I mean, like, uh, you know, when, like, like you know, you've got the criminal world. You don't know. I mean, this is like Lufthansa. This is like what happened in, in, in the vault in, in Rhode Island. I mean, this is one of those hits that, that is just enormous. These guys took off with a hell of a lot of money. And as you can imagine, there is some fallout. <laughs> yeah, there always is, isn't there? <laughs> Especially with that kind of money, you know. Yeah. It's just, uh, I see that uh, they each took a, 
like 500000 to play around with, which is way too much money for most of these guys probably have to play around with. And, uh, you know, you know, they were all driving expensive new cars right away. Yeah. Uh, and, and then they need to launder the rest of it because, you know, 500000 each was, you know, if you got 8 to 10 million, 15 million, then 500000 is just kind of a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Just a couple, three million there. So, what, what, what did, what, what are the stories about how they got rid of it? Did they take it out of the country and launder it or did they took a lot of it to the Philippines or Tahiti and, 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 bought homes and restaurants and, and things like that in, in resort locations and in, in places where, uh, where people, uh, vacation. Uh, Ray Chuck, when his son came of age, there was $6 million for him in a bank in London. His son is now a millionaire off of money that was, was, uh, sitting for him in a bank in, uh, in London. I read an article about him recently <laughs> talking about he, uh, he came of age and there was a trust. That was... Well, I tell you what, this, this guy, you know, like, uh, the Lufthansa, nobody ever knew what happened to that money, but, uh, you, you know, it got, the mob ended up getting it and frittered it away somewhere between a bunch of other guys. But, uh, here you kind of know what happened and that, and he actually got away with the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, uh, you know, they, they know a lot of it went, uh, went out of the country to be in it, but they, they never, the, the police never tracked it down. They just know that, that uh, uh, somehow $6 million was smuggled, and he, you know, he didn't get it through clean living and being frugal. There was a lot of money that went into, like I said, Tahiti and the Philippines. They had a guy who, um, this guy named Dennis Greedy Smith, who uh, helped invest in these businesses for these guys. But they didn't really live long enough to spend most of it, most of them. They, they had uh, really bad luck because you got that kind of money in the underworld and people know you've got it because it, it, it didn't take long for people to figure out that, that it was Ray Chuck Bennett who had stolen the money. Uh, he was the kind of guy who could pull off a job like that and people put it together based on different, you know, buying, buying the guns and, and he did it with, with five other guys and, and they know that Bennett hangs out with this Prendergast in Mickelson and the Kane brothers are really high-ranking members of the Painters and Dockers. And, you know, they're m much higher than uh, Ray Chuck. And they're well thought of. They've got a lot more connections in the criminal underworld. The Kane brothers are, are sort of higher up on the food chain. So they feel that because of their connections, they deserve a larger piece of the pie. So they start, this starts some, uh, some friction between them. And eventually there's a bar fight between uh, this uh, Vinnie Mickelson and Brian Kane. <laughs> Mickelson bites off Brian Kane's ear. Shades of Mike Tyson there. Yeah, right? Over a couple of pints. Les Kane, who is a, a, a real psychopath, he's he's going to kill. He's he's the bigger threat. And they know he is going to kill Ray Chuck Bennett and these other two. The painters and dockers support the Kane brothers. So you've got basically the entire underworld gunning for Ray Chuck and Mickelson and Prendergast because they've got all this money and they've got the Kane brothers and their organization after them. On uh, October 19th, 1978, a little bit over two years after the robbery, Les Kane and his wife and kids come home for the evening and three men in balaclavas break into the house waving guns and they took his wife and children to a bedroom and locked them in, told them to be quiet. His wife recognized uh, Mickelson and, and Ray Chuck and Prendergast a lot like, this is a lot like the Denny Seifert murder when his wife recognized uh, Joey, Joey Lombardo. They shot 
Les Kane in the bathroom, shot him to death, and then they took his body, threw him in the trunk, and drove him away. He was never, he was, the body was never found. I guess part of the, the, the painter's knockers had a code of silence. The police asked, did she know anything? And uh, she said, no, I don't know who did it. And, you know, they wore masks. But she did tell Brian Kane, and he said he was going to handle it. Ray Chuck, at that point, knew he was really in trouble. After about a year of laying low and hiding out and different threats, he turned himself into the police on uh, some minor charges. As he figures in police custody, he'd be safe. He'll go lie low in jail for a while. Uh, he had some some friends in jail, even though there are a lot of lot of they could get him in jail. But he had some other friends in there. He was tight with a guy named uh, Chopper Reed, I think, and he could he could take he wanted to take his chances in jail. November twelfth, nineteen seventy nine, he was arraigned, and as they are escorting him down the back steps of the courthouse, a man jumps out, shot him three times in the head with a snub nose 38, runs down the back steps and, and flees through the fence. How convenient that they happened to be there. They happened to know that he'd be coming down those back steps at that time. How can, with unarmed mm-hmm. officers, how convenient. Exactly. So they later found the fence at the back of the building had been had been taken apart. The, the crowd had prevented any, any police chase. I read a later account from a cop who didn't want to be named. He says that, that police had actually cooperated with uh, Brian Kane. The the police sided more with the Canes than with, with Ray Chuck. They felt that after after Ray Chuck and his guys killed Les Kane in front of his family, they were too unpredictable. The Canes were more of a were more of a uh, reliable criminal organization they they they're not going to go outside and do things in front of somebody's wife and their kids you got the painters and dockers and the cops supporting uh the kane brothers there's even somebody says that that earlier in the week kane, brian kane did a practice run that the the cops smuggled him in the in the trunk of a police car it, even a lot of police when it was investigated believed it must have been an inside job but nobody saw anything nobody knew anything you know it, it just it's just sort of hush hush, but but most people believed it had been an inside job. God, I see in your notes here that it looks like everybody's just like Lufthansa, everybody gets killed. <laughs> right, right. A couple years later, Brian Kane is he's involved in some kind of an altercation. He's shot to death in pub in a pub by uh two masks so two guys with masks shoot him in nineteen eighty two. Uh, Ian Carroll, one of the other guys, was uh, shot and killed in 1983. Uh, Laurie Prendergast, the guy who was tight with Ray Chuck, he just his body disappeared in 1985. He was never found. Uh, Vinnie Mickelson, he fled to the Western States. He stayed there for a lot of years, and he, he returned years later after everyone was dead. Normie Lee continued as a as a he lived. I think he lived in the Philippines or Tahiti for a while, back and forth. He eventually ran out of money and came back for another big robbery. He was trying to rob a payroll truck in 1992, and he was shot to death by the police. You know, if you've got $16 million worth of cash in the underworld. (laughs) The moral of this story here, Cam. (laughs) The moral of the story is when you got $16 million of cash in the underworld, things can go south south awful damn quick. Among your uh, Confederates, they, you know, they always fall out too. (laughs) Everybody wants more. Uh, that's an oft-told story. I don't know if anybody's ever really gotten clean away with something like that. No, not, not that I've heard. But it's a, it is a hell of a heist, isn't it? Yes, it is. That was a good one. And, you know, those uh, criminals robbing criminals is, uh, you know, that's such a, a pretty smart thing to do. But 
I don't know. It seemed like you'd be better off to uh, to rob uh, like Lufthansa. You know, you have the police after you, but you don't have the underworld, underworld, right. and the police after you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You rob the criminals; they know who you are. Early on in the podcasting, I did a story about a guy that would went around and robbed local drug, drug dealers here in Kansas City, and I had some some interaction with different people like that. If you ever watched The Wire, Omar, the character Omar, he'd yeah. go around and rob drug dealers. The people that rob other criminals are the baddest of the bad, usually. they Those are the guys that got the balls, man. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. You know, like I, said, like I said, there's like a double whammy. You got other criminals after you, and you got the cops after you. And, and, and when you're in the midst of that robbery, you're more likely to get resistance than if you go into a bank or something. They, they're yeah. told, you know, just... Just don't do anything. That's like I've interviewed the Booney Hat Bandit who's a bank robber down here in Missouri. And he said he got caught because the bank manager at the last bank disregarded his standing instructions. Those were just to stay inside and don't do anything. (laughs) And the guy ran outside and saw his car and and called it in. Or a police car came up pretty quick after the Alarm went off and gave him a description. They caught him not too far away before he could switch cars. So, uh, so you're much safer robbing banks and and people that work in those things because insurance will cover that. Insurance doesn't cover those criminal right. money. <laughs> Crazy. Well, Cam, Cam, that's been great. That's that was a hell of a story. I'm glad you were able to yeah. find that one yeah, out. I like that. that. Was, uh, that's been a lot of fun. Our, or continue down or uh, periodically dip into Australian organized crime. And, and we may have to branch out to another country. I don't know which other one we should go to, but Absolutely. I'm sure Russia. I, you know, I've got a guy who is a Russian that got hold of me that's done uh, written a book, and I just need to get back in touch with him. We could do a, a, an interview of him. Uh, I can't remember Absolutely. his name. I'll send you the information here in uh, one of these days soon and i need to get back to him and kind of make sure that i let him know that i'm in i told him once i was interested and he sent me a pdf of his book and uh, i just haven't got back to him to let him know okay just hang in there man and make sure i know how to get hold of you and we'll, we'll get you on so we'll, we'll swing out into into russia or he's been all over russia and, and italy and sicily and uh, i think maybe the mid-east that, that guy's been all over so um, he'll be an interesting one they got a hell of an underworld in Russia, man. Yeah, they do. They, uh, uh, I was doing a story on the Russians and the uh, franchise. Well, it wasn't really about franchise. It was about, uh, I think, uh, Roy DeMeo was one of those uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, New York mobsters, uh, uh, Lucchese or Gambino one, that had the gas tax uh, scam going. I mean, they made millions and millions of dollars. Uh, gas pipe queso. Right, right. Where they and the Russians were all over that too, and, and yeah. And my research revealed that the Russians they were so used to dealing with governmental agencies and and taxing authorities and how all those worked <laughs> that they kind of came up with that whole scam on on how to do that that. Uh, uh, Set up those shell companies and buy the gas and, and charge other people the tax and then don't tell the uh, don't pay it back into the state, but because they came from this corrupt society that it was just it's it's an yeah. art form on how you avoid any kind of taxing from authorities over there in Russia. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline. 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 if you're a vet.
You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the... Uh, I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps, to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.